Thessalonians to chapter 5. If you don't have a Bible here, you'll find one in the pew near you. We'd always encourage you, though, to make use of one, whether on a device or a paper Bible. Recently, a pastor friend pointed out to me one of the reasons why he is still committed to his paper Bible, and there's a long list of those, but one of them was you can't or you probably won't pass down your device to your children and grandchildren. And there is something meaningful. I still have one of my grandparents' Bibles of understanding there is a lineage of faith and to see things highlighted, underlined, things that mattered and spoke. And the device simply doesn't do that. I would always encourage you in any case, though, to have a way to follow along in the Word. This morning we're in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, and we are coming toward the end of this series. We're the second to last as we've worked through this book. And if you are just joining us this morning, then you should know that we are in a section, unlike most of the book, that's filled with these small exhortations. They are brief, but they are potent. And this morning in verse 26, it's the same. But I would submit to you that of all of the little exhortations here, this might be the easiest one to just walk right past and not give a second thought to. But we're going to do the opposite this morning. We're going to think somewhat seriously about what is being conveyed in verse 26. Hear together with me the word of the Lord. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. So ends the reading of the word of the Lord. Let's ask his blessing. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning for having invited us to a meal. We thank you that after this service, we have the opportunity of fellowship and a tangible meal, but even now you would feed us with the word. You say that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes forth from the mouth of God. We ask that you would take these few words and through them by your Holy Spirit, lift us up with love to Christ and with the desire to extend that love to all of your people, to proclaim it in the world. For in Jesus' name, God's people pray, amen. Just a couple of weeks ago, we had the blessing, the deacons, the elders, the pastors, of receiving a visit from what we call church visitors. We have agreed as part of the United Reformed Churches in North America that every two years, we will arrange to have, usually it's a pastor and an elder, from another church in our region come and visit us, and they ask us a whole variety of questions. Mainly, it's a kind of third-party checkup, see how we're doing, and to offer encouragement. Now, imagine that our church visitors, we had a pastor and elder, imagine that they had brought us the exact same advice that Paul leaves the church with here. That they had said to us, oh, by the way, besides, you know, keep doing your preaching, keep having the Lord's Supper, but also we, we really want to encourage you, greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. What do you think our response would have been? What do you think your response would have been to that? Just in a group of this size, I can anticipate, I think you can as well, several different responses that would be very likely. In the first place, it's probably the case that some of you would dismiss this as a cultural artifact. That was then, that's them, they're Mediterranean, and this has no more bearing on us than had Paul concluded 
one of his epistles with. And while you're at it, have some Spanakopita, have some Greek olives, enjoy good things. But is it not true that some of you, at least, thought that as you read this? You go, oh, that's just their culture. Or maybe that's a European thing. That's not an American thing. And so you walk past it. Others, I imagine, hear this, and you take it a little more seriously, but you think this is simply too problematic in our time and place. Maybe that worked then, but if you had a bunch of people showing up at church or in other places, giving one another any kind of kiss, then that's going to lead to problems. And you think because our culture is one that is hyper-sensualized, where any kind of platonic, friendly touch has been eclipsed so that if people see others touching someone who's not their spouse, often there is suspicion. Why? Why, why are they touching them at all? If I see, just a couple weeks ago, I was walking my dog, and I saw two women holding hands, and as I got closer, I saw it was a mother and maybe a 20-year-old daughter, and sharing... And I saw your faces just now, some of you, suspicion instantly. That's a tragedy. A tragedy that legitimate, human, healthy touch has become a point of suspicion so readily. It says something about the corruption of the time that we live in. And for that reason, some of you, I imagine, would look at this and say, well, that was great for them. We can't be that way now. We can't touch each other now. Another would be to downplay it on account of disease. And in our particular moment, I think that's more understandable, that people would say, yeah, this kind of intimacy, kissing one another, getting your face that close to my face on a regular basis, that is just asking for there to be a spread or a contraction of sickness. The apostles didn't know about germ theory. If they did, they never would have said this. That is a common response to this passage. Or... Perhaps the majority response would be simply to feel uncomfortable with it, to dislike it for personal reasons. I don't like people, maybe you feel, who are not my most intimate relatives or friends to come anywhere that close to me. I'm fine maybe with an occasional handshake and keep it really brief and keep the Purell nearby. Is this not how much of our culture is? And then you travel somewhere else, and you find out that other parts of the world, indeed, do feel much more comfortable with touch. Some parts of our Bible have, there are parts that clearly apply equally everywhere, obviously. And then other parts, you have to really ask, what is it about my culture in particular that struggles with something? I want to lay before you that I do believe this passage, even this one verse, merits more serious attention than many of us have given to it. And on what grounds would I say that? Why should you take this seriously? One is simply the frequency with which this comes up. Five times in the New Testament, an explicit instruction or command is given to greet one another with a kiss. And rather than saying, well, that's just their culture, bear in mind aspects of this were not necessarily their culture. Three different writers, Peter, James, and Paul, give the instruction to three different cultures. They overlap, but they're distinct. Jewish, Roman, and Greek. And so these are different cultures. And the fact that it says to give this to all was definitely not the culture. In their time, it would have been unthinkable for a slave to greet the master in this way. It would have been unthinkable for the rich and the poor to come together. It would have been unthinkable for Jew and Gentile to draw together in this kind of intimacy. 
And so you can't simply say, this doesn't matter, that was their culture, five times. On top of that, the situation of these commands is important, where they're placed. Notice in our text, it immediately follows a request for prayer. And it comes immediately before a command that this book be read together with all the church. It's not placed somewhere among things that are optional. Even more clear, 2 Corinthians 13.12 gives the same command. And it comes right within a list of imperatives. Hear these. Who would ever think that any of these were optional? Rejoice. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace. And then greet one another with a holy kiss. And so the places that they are found in are not such that would lead you to think that this is optional. Now, what then does it mean for us? This morning, the Holy Spirit, I believe, lays before you something very simple. That as those who have been united with Jesus Christ, our resurrected Lord, we have a calling to physically embody and reaffirm to others the unity and the affection of the gospel. We have a calling to embody and to reaffirm the unity and the affection that belongs to us in the gospel. Now, what does that look like and what drives this? These are some of the things that we're going to consider together. We're going to look at this passage under three main divisions. First, we are going to try to clarify the command. What is it saying? What is it perhaps not saying? And then after that, we want to consider the purpose. Most of our time will be spent on the purpose. But then finally, Lord willing, at the end, we'll conclude by way of what I offer simply as pastoral advice. It's not meant to be binding, but some kind of perimeter on how you might put this into practice. With that in mind, look with me again at verse 26, and let's give special attention to these words. Verse 26, as we clarify the command, it says, Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. Now notice first what Paul did not say. Do you notice what he did not say? He did not say, and you should not hear it this way, Hey, give certain people my greeting. He does that at times in other epistles, in addition to what we're talking about here. In the book of Romans, he has all of these particular people he names. But also Romans 16, 16, he says, greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. So these are not to cancel one another out. Paul is not telling particular people in Thessalonica to go to particular people and to greet them on Paul's behalf. The imperative, the command here, is given to the whole congregation. The same people who are to hear the word read to them. The same people who are to pray. The same people who are designated in chapter 1, verse 1, to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. If you belong to the church, this command belongs to you. A command to greet. A command to greet. Now, who are you to greet? I want you to try to appreciate the range of the recipients. Who are you to extend this greeting in the Lord to? Look at 26. It says, all the brothers... Compare that with verse 27. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. There you have some close context interpreting for you what he means by all, the whole congregation. Everyone who was to hear Thessalonians read 
was also to be the object of greeting. That is radical and cannot be overstated. Is it not often the case that when we come to church, I speak as one, not better than you on this, but we beeline for the same five or ten people that we know well, we greet them, we are glad that others are here, and then we leave. Is there the same kind of enthusiasm for others whom we do not know as well, a rejoicing that they are in the Lord, such that we would want to greet them. Now, I'm not trying to say, of course, that this means every Sunday you should feel guilty for having closer friends. Jesus himself had some closer friends. But this does have to do with the extent of the love and the affection that's demonstrated here. At minimum, it would seem that he has in mind the whole congregation. But I draw your attention. If you haven't been with us, by the way, for the months that we've been going through this book, there's a recurring theme in this book. One of the recurring themes, that is, is how we express our unity with people outside of our local congregation. If you look with me back at chapter 1 and look at verse 7, you'll see this. Here, Paul is praising them for how they express unity and love. Chapter 1, verse 7, you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. We're talking a region larger than Arizona. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere. One of these themes, again, is how we express our love, our unity with people outside of this congregation, but who are inside of Jesus Christ. And so the greeting extends outward as well. Finally, I want to give you a a word about the form of the greeting. The form of the greeting. Stated here as a holy kiss. I would suggest to you that the emphasis of the apostle was not so much upon the specific physical form that it came in. Namely, a kiss. Though we'll come back to whether or not that is possible as well. That the emphasis is not predominantly upon the particular form, as opposed to, say, a hug, a handshake, etc. I don't believe that the point here is that you are sinning if everyone doesn't kiss everyone every time they see each other. Not to be dogmatic about this. But rather the emphasis and what would have been particularly striking is upon the holiness of this physical affection. It is to be characterized by a holiness, by the work of the Spirit, driven by the concerns that God has. Holiness. Because that would have stood out in their culture. So much of touch, even if it's affectionate and relatively healthy, is not concerned for the pleasure of the Lord. Why do I say that it's probably not to be dogmatic, that we are to kiss one another necessarily? Well, Christians did not invent this custom. And you, to my knowledge, you won't find anything like these commands in the Old Testament, specifically that believers were to give this greeting. Christians did not invent this custom, but they did invest it with greater significance. And for that reason, I wouldn't be dogmatic, but I would perhaps push back. I would encourage you to ask yourself, what is it about North America in our time that gives us a special exemption? What is it about our time and your past that exempts you from either giving or receiving intimacy. 
Because, again, while I will say that there is affection to be shown another way, just while I was walking in, one of our former elders gave me a pat on the shoulder, and I felt good. It, it was nice. And then as I was walking out, I saw two of our sisters hugging, and I heard one of them say, and surely this is God's providence, I love it when you hug me. I would not be dogmatic, but on the other hand, the handshake versus a kiss or a hug certainly puts you out of remove. And Paul could have spoken of another way, and yet it does seem the Holy Spirit lays before us a certain degree of intimacy. At minimum, this is what is clear about the command. He desires that our greeting of one another, of all, would go beyond verbal and at times be physical. I think what's harder to me, that's the relatively easy portion of this, is just to say, what does it say? What's harder is why. And if you don't get to the why, you're never going to be moved by this. It's going to be another one of those rules that you think, well, yeah, I know the Bible says that, but I don't know why it would want me to, and I'm not going to change. Actually, changing does involve a faith-formed understanding. And here we consider the purpose of this. This is our second main heading. In fact, I invite you, in a few moments, we'll end up at 1 John 1. I invite you to turn there. First John 1, verse 1. We'll come to that in just a moment. As we consider the purpose for these commands, I believe at the bottom of it is an understanding of what the Bible teaches about something we call anthropology. Children, if you don't know that word, anthropology is an understanding of the nature which God has given people, what we are, the way he made us. And the Bible lays out an anthropology, a view of human beings, which is at odds with much of what the world says human beings are and exist for and what we need and how we act. If you go back to the very beginning, to Genesis chapter 1, the most obvious thing about our anthropology is that God created human beings to be a composite, to be a whole of body and soul. What is made of physical stuff you can touch And then a spirit that is able to exist apart from the body, to maintain identity, even beyond death. Now, when God does that, he makes a clear statement of his enjoyment of our embodiment. At times, maybe you want to be free of your body. The Lord does not share that desire. He wants you to have a glorified body. And for now, he wants you to be in your body. God created us as human beings to be embodied. When he looks at creation, he calls that good. In fact, there's only one thing prior to the fall that God does not call good, and it's being alone. Adam was embodied, but he was alone, and so the Lord creates him a wife. He creates Eve. And what does Adam say when he sees Eve? It's arguably in a poetic form, and so it's as if romance begins to pour forth from his lips. He says, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, the physicality of his reaction. He doesn't say, oh, a conversation partner. Oh, so. No, and I don't mean that at all against conversation. His point is that there is something intensely beautiful and desirable about the embodiment of our fellow human beings. Something that we should not diminish or desire to evade. Jesus himself says that for this reason, the way that God created human beings, for this reason, a man shall leave his wife or leave his family and cleave to his wife. 
cling to her. The imagery, again, of human beings from the beginning is one of a close physical connection. Study after study seems to confirm what is patently obvious to anyone with any sense. The health, the overall health and well-being of humans is closely tied to the frequency and the quality of the touch that we receive. That is not a dramatic revelation of science. That's just the way God made humans. But of course, if you've lived for a day, then you are aware of the fact that sin has also broken the way that we touch and our experience. Many of us, it's a grief to even hear such a sermon because we can't not remember inappropriate or harmful touches that we experience. And the resulting distrust, the separation that ends up happening. Even the fact, again, in our present moment, we have a heightened awareness of disease. And so people want closeness, but they feel they can't have closeness. And there's a sadness that corresponds with that and should correspond with that. God made us to experience healthy physical affection. In the desperation that sometimes grows out of this, our society... It's like a a house as it settles, the creaking in it. Perhaps a a ruin in particular, you're in there at night, and you just hear the boards popping and splitting. Humanity is in somewhat of a ruined state. And the grief that we have in this state is manifested different ways. People in their desperation for touch, how many turn to promiscuity? How many turn to all kinds of strange or unhealthy forms of touch? The answer that God gives us is not one of taking away the need for touch. That is not what he calls us to in Jesus Christ. Being called into faith is not a promise that God is going to take away your desire for human contact. What does God do? Rather, he sets about to restore and even to improve upon in our resurrected form that which he created. And how does he do this? You know this, but have you thought and appreciated recently, especially as you long, I know some of you long for greater healthy touch for a whole variety of reasons. It does hardly exist in your life. God did not take away the need for touch. Instead, he clothes himself in our humanity. When God comes among us, the second person of the Trinity comes among us, Jesus Christ wearing our flesh, he enters into, from that point forward, an everlasting arrangement where he is accessible for love and affection and gives it freely to his people. Imagine if you were to go throughout the Gospels and see all of the various ways that Jesus enacts, he embodies, he applies the affection of the Father to people. His disciple Peter steps out of the boat, and he's walking on the water for a moment, but then he begins to become afraid. He doubts. And Jesus, when he sees a disciple doubting the living God, does not step back and say, go down. No. Jesus reaches out a hand. He lays hold of him. When Thomas is in a time of doubt, Jesus extends a hand. He says, touch the wounds. That's not just about providing empirical evidence. It's as much a demonstration of love and restoration that Jesus would extend himself to him. In the Gospels, we find Jesus touching lepers. 
He could have healed with just a word. He does that at times. But it's a very likelihood that same leper had went decades without human touch. And Jesus is healing him in more than just physical ways. We're at the end of the gospel where Jesus and John are eating together. And it says that John is reclining upon the chest of Jesus. This is the kind of friend that you have in Jesus Christ. Who would not be averse to your desire for close affection. Truly platonic, loving affection. John himself, having experienced that, seems obviously never to have gotten over it. Look with me at 1 John 1.1. Here he's speaking of the eternal Son of God. Catch the excitement, the enthusiasm in what he says. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, The life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and testify to it, and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father, and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Out of the experience of this, John then desires to bring other people into the experience of it. What does it prove about Jesus that Judas betrayed him with not a holy kiss, but an evil kiss? Among other things, it proves that Judas knew Jesus to be the sort of man who would receive that kind of intimate greeting. But where has he most clearly demonstrated this love? invite you to turn to Isaiah chapter 53. In the Old Testament, the longest of the prophetic books, Isaiah chapter 53. This is a prophecy uttered about 600 years before Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary. And it foretells what he would suffer to redeem us. 53 verse 4. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Which one of us, brother or sister, which one of us, stranger who has not yet come to faith in Christ, has always, ever, only used this gorgeous, wonderful gift of physical embodiment for that which was loving? Have we not all at different times wielded violence unfairly? Have we not all at times yearned for or participated in that which was a grief to God? He suffered himself to shame, to be afflicted, in order that you might experience everlastingly healthy, glorious resurrection touch. He suffered death to free us from what we deserve. 
And the practical outworking, the purpose then, in a command like greet one another with a holy kiss, it's the overflow of what the apostles had experienced in this unifying affection that the Lord would draw us to himself and show love. Verse 26, greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. It cuts across all the lines, Jew and Gentile, previously would not touch. Slave, free. Rich, poor. In this opportunity, we embody, we reaffirm to others that they really are welcomed in the Lord. It's not about our welcome. That's the difference. When we come in, if we only greet the same people that we know and love, we're reaffirming to them that we like them. And we like them somewhat legalistically. They bring something to the table that we appreciate. There is a kind of exchange. Oh, I like this one. He's funny. I like that one. She's kind, and she helped me with my home. I like. There can be any number of reasons that are good in themselves, but this greeting is gospel-based. It's gracious, and it reaffirms people in that. Some churches have incorporated this into their liturgies. I would not go so far as to desire that. I think in some ways that can undermine the organic way that we experience it. But it seems to be very clear the Lord wants us to reflect the unity and affection of the gospel. By way of conclusion, what I'd like to do with you in these minutes that remain is simply provide a little bit of pastoral advice. I don't lay this on you as a necessity, as a burden. This is my wisdom. So you have to weigh it. But in the first place, holy affection does not impose itself. Holy affection does not impose itself upon others in this church. And that means that you have to have some sense of whether or not others welcome this. And you have to respect that. Maybe you wish that they were more accommodating and we are not all at the same place. And that's fine. You also don't know who here perhaps was abused. You don't know who is presently sick or most susceptible. And so we have to respect that. What do we do? I would encourage you, do what we should almost always do in every circumstance that it's not sure. Ask. It's perfectly acceptable as you get to know people to ask, hey, what, what kind of physical affection are you comfortable with? Because I don't want to cross any lines. And because people are so unused to that question, they will probably feel uncomfortable with that question. And that's okay. We are growing here. We are not the world. We are this church. And in this church, we can have our own culture, a subculture. And that's okay as we get to know one another. I want to recommend as well that you not coerce or shame children into physical affection with others. In the past, I think that was a lot more common. It seems that younger people are much more aware to not do that with their own kids, to make them hug people that they don't know or don't feel comfortable with. That's okay. Children warm up usually after they get to know people. And then as it relates to Interactions between the sexes to be especially mindful of propriety. It is not clear to me from this epistle that Paul expects that every male and female interact in the same way. He says, greet all the brothers. And certainly the brothers are greeting the brothers and the sisters are greeting the sisters with a holy kiss. But it will probably look different among others, especially as they are closer in age. But this would be a guide for us. 1 Timothy 5.2. Treat older women as you would your mother. This is to a young pastor. Treat younger women with all purity as you would your own sisters. 
Let me remind you, a handshake can be as unholy as anything else, more unholy than a hug, if it comes from impurity. And so we are to be mindful of that. On the other hand, we are not to then say it should or cannot exist. Think about who Paul wrote these letters to. The Corinthian church is told, greet one another with a kiss. The Corinthian church, that was so characterized by every kind of sexual morality. The Thessalonians, we saw a number of months ago, they are told they're having problems with taking advantage of one another in those same ways. And yet neither is told no touch. Part of the solution is healthy boundaries. So that it's no longer a matter of suspicion or things implied every time people touch. If I had experienced, I have experienced food poisoning, it has not persuaded me never to eat again. Past abuse does not nullify what God has ordained as good and healthy. If anything, we need to remember that it is so necessary, especially as churches are sometimes fractured or divided. One commentator says, in the context of the community's divisions, the holy kiss would necessarily serve as a powerful sign of reconciliation among people who had previously been estranged. It's a powerful sign of reconciliation. I'm not going to tell you because I don't know when the magic moment will be that everyone, all 100%, will look back and say, not worried about COVID anymore. I don't know when that's going to be, and I'm not going to try to decide for everyone when that moment is. On the other hand, we have to bear in mind, and here we are, we've just been moving through this book, God was aware of sickness when he ordained this. And it's clear his design is for it to be the exception, not the norm, that we abstain from giving and receiving affection. It is the exception, not the norm. We cannot be wiser than God. If we try to be, our total health as a community and individually will suffer. Finally, I encourage you, brothers and sisters, even as this is hard and you will not have the full kind of care that you desire on this side of eternity, look forward, call it to mind, the joy that belongs to us in the age to come. You will be embraced. You will embrace And that is worthy of praising the Lord. Let's pray even now. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you. We praise you for this passage and for all of your word that demonstrates to us your great love. The psalm warns us to kiss the Son lest we come under wrath. But we thank you, Lord, that you did not wait for us, but you in mercy came down, and a sense you have kissed humanity by taking our flesh. Even more, you have sent forth your Holy Spirit into your people. You gather a people, transforming our hearts, inclining us sweetly to love you. We love you because we were first loved. And we thank you that you have made us ambassadors of your presence in the world. We are not only a kingdom, but a house We thank you that you have many sons and daughters, many whom you have not yet called but shall call. We pray that you would cause this particular church to not fall short of that mark, but to be an embodiment of the unity and the affection which belong to us of every kind through Jesus Christ who stands above every identity. You, Lord, you receive all glory, honor, and power. 
For in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.